0: A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together we're Pete and Gary's, Gary's Military history, history Podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Gary Bain and Hello. that person interrupting me is Peter Hart. Oh. Morning, Peter. Morning. Uh, what are we doing today, Pete? Straight in. Straight, Straight like the stretched. professionals we are.
1: We're doing a second in our uh, in our uh, series about the 16th Durham Light Infantry, the 16th DLI as we call them, and this one's called polishing off. I thought it's finishing touches. It is finishing touches, but I've got I've been changing. my mind. a
0: bit late now. You published the book. Oh yeah, which is available from Profile. What's it called, Pete? Footslogger. Uz. Oh, it's <laughs> him.
1: And it is available now. It is right. So where were we? Well, we were we were talking about uh, the, the, uh, the the it's the training period. Hence, polishing up or polishing off or finishing touches, whatever you like. And it's that, that we're looking at the end of their training in English. So where where are they moved to? Well,
0: actually, just to, to recap, we'd introduce them. They were one of the Dunkirk uh, battalions, weren't they? Yeah. That were raised as a, a result of what had happened. At that time, uh, and they weren't all from Durham, were they?
1: No, they were from all over the place. A big draft from Beds and Hearts. Uh, they like we. Were, this is the result of the Somme, if you like, echoing down uh, the thirty or forty years, 20, 20 years. <laughs> You're doing uh, well today, maths, repeating, Gary. <laughs> so where are we then? Well, in on the seventeenth of November, nineteen forty-one, uh, the sixteenth DLI move into Risborough, Risborough Barracks at Shawcliffe. Uh, where is Shorncliffe Camp? Uh, it's at Folkestone, basically. And there, the 139 Brigade, which is their brigade within 46th Division, was replacing uh, 169 Brigade. We don't need to care about them on coastal defences. Um, now, uh, so what does this mean? What uh, who Who is in overall command? Well, the whole of
0: the 46th Division was now under the aegis of Southern aegis? Command. Aegis? Aegis? <laughs> Did you
1: just say Aegis? Yes, of Southern Command. I'm very impressed. Uh, and Have you been reading the dictionary again? You've got to A.E., haven't you?
0: <laughs> in winter, the barracks were a welcome relief from the misery, I know how they feel, of sodden tents in a muddy field, perhaps even counterbalancing the inevitable increase in spit and polish that barrack life encompassed.
1: Always more spit and polish in a barrack, isn't there? Yeah. Now, uh, well, so, uh, by this time, the, 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 the role of the Dunkirk battalions across the country had changed, is not it? What What were they now, really? Well,
0: they were being used as training and reinforcement battalions, sending out drafts as required to other units. Now, these departures were noted by one John Lewinden, who grew up as part of a, a family dairy business in East Finchley. I know somebody from East Finchley. It's me! Now, he'd been called up for basic training with the Beds and Hearts, and one of the original drafts sent to Edinburgh. He took a somewhat cynical
1: attitude to the motivation of officers. That's not like an East
0: Finchley lad. In picking out the men for drafting away. And this is Private John Lewinden of the Headquarters Company.
1: And I want, dear listeners, to, to notice that I avoid the temptation to do my East Finchley Boy Scout blue bottle impressionation. No, but you will be doing an East Finchley accent. I will? Right, here we go. This is my best East Finchley accent. We lost people. Whilst we were in Folkestone, there were three small drafts taken out of the battalion, sent to other units as reinforcements. They were just picked out. That was the ideal opportunity for the company commander to get rid of undesirables. Yeah, you can sort of understand why that would yeah, happen, wouldn't that you? That would have been the end of you in the 16th, wouldn't it? Might have been. Now, in return, the 16th
0: DLI received several large drafts of untrained men. This changeover of personnel meant a continued concentration in individual training.
1: Yeah, the idea is to raise the military standards of every soldier, uh, and also there's, there's something else. It's not just training basic soldiers, is it? No, they're try- they're also
0: trying to build up the reserves of
1: specialists such
0: as signalers, machine gunners, drivers, and of course, ha 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 ha,
1: junior
0: NCOs. I was a junior NCO.
1: Yeah. A lot. A lot, yeah. <laughs> uh, one of the new arrivals was a chap called Tom Turnbull. Uh- Who was he? Well, he was the son of a shipyard plater from uh, Monk Wearmouth, Sunderland, aye. After a brief period as a rivet catcher in the shipyards... What a great job, rivet catcher. (laughs) To me, to me, I got it. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) he'd been working on property repairs as a builder, which probably was a more congenial job. He'd already settled down to married life. Have you ever settled down to married life? Yes, with the, the wonderful Janet. Just in case she listens. Yeah, (laughs) what chance is that? And he had a daughter as well. Uh, After being called up, he was surprised to be posted straight to the 16th DLI in January 1942. And this is what Tom Turnbull, Private Tom Turnbull, and he's in, they set up a training company just for the the new recruits, e-training company. And what does he say, Gary? I was called up 8th of January 1942.
0: When I got my papers, when I saw Durham Light Infantry, I said to my wife, I'll be going to the Till I read further down, I had to report to Shawcliffe Barracks in Folkestone, Kent. There was about 120 of us all ex-tradesmen from the building trade. We all went in together and formed E Company. We did our
1: training, actually, in the 16th Battalion, Durham Light Infantry. Now, there's a problem when you get a dra- big draft. Three big drafts arrive like that, and that is that uh, they're behind. I mean, they're, they're raw recruits, aren't they? The, the other lads have been training for some best part six months. They've got a lot of ground to make up. Uh, I'd say this was going to be a hard piece of hard work, a hard training for uh, Tom, Tom Turnbull. What does he say? PT every day,
0: mostly gymnasium work and physical training drill. We had a proper physical training instructor and fully equipped gym. I always wanted to keep myself fit before I went in the services, but you really found out you weren't as fit as you thought you were. Route marches were bloody awful, about 15 to 20 mile, 10 minutes rest every hour. Sometimes, when you sat down, you found that you could hardly get up. At first, you were blooming sore and your feet blistered until you got used to army boots.
1: Now, the, 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 that, that's what, it's fitness training. It, this is all you went through, all this. Yeah, yeah it, it carried on well into the, to my time, yeah. Uh, and, of course, there's weapons training. Now, the weapons train change, uh, but, but, but in essence, uh, it all stays the same. And there's a, there's a hell of a lot to learn. It's not just your Lee Enfield, is it?
0: No, there, there's, there's a lot to learn, as you say. And this is Private Tom Turnbull once more. I've never shot anything before, apart from a rifle at a fairground. That was a bit like me. I'd never shot anything before I went in. First.
1: Or or after. (laughs) Or
0: after, yeah. First, they had a sort of stand that they fixed the rifle in, and you were taught how to sight. You were told the front sight and the back sight. Line them up, and that was it. Then we went straight on the three hundred three range at Hythe with live ammunition. Most of your training is firing lying down, feet spread out in line. You just adapted that way. You learned how to keep the rifle tight in your shoulder or you'll get a kick. Ooh. It was a pretty hefty kick, but you learned by trial and error. Bayonet training, you started with the bags on the ground and on the frame charging with the fixed bayonet, shouting just anything that came into your mind. arsenal oh, We were fully trained on the Bren, stripping it down. Now, the Bren, um, later they changed the barrel, and uh, it was, in effect, the Bren I was using as the LMG in, in the late 70s now he says about stripping it down he says you could do it in the dark you fired it on the range a very accurate weapon it certainly was you can put it on single shot or automatic if it's automatic you talk to firing bursts of five which was pretty quick just like a press of the trigger and release it and that was it it was a good weapon the tommy gun the thompson well we trained on them as well it was a good little weapon It had a stopping power. Mm. You were taught that if you wanted to hit anybody in the chest, you had to fire at the knees because it jumped. We liked it. You were trained on the Mills bomb. First of all, how to take the detonator in and out. Then training on a dummy grenade to get used to throwing the distance. Then they give you a live one. You pull the pin out and had the handle gripped in your hand. When you threw it over arm, you saw the handle come off and that was it. You got down sharp. We were trained on the two-inch mortar. One man dropped a bomb down a tube, and the other man turned the handle on the side and fired it. It's fired by the striking pin on the base plate. The range was judged by the elevation. You got that used to it, you could more or less tell by the angle of the barrel to the base plate how far it would fire.
1: Yeah, it's an intuitive thing, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, um, like darts, if you like, uh, I'm no good at darts. No, I'm if you're very good at mortars, either. I've seen you try, trying to throw a hand grenade. <laughs> um, so um, only so th- these e-company lads. It's only when they've been passed out as a trained soldier uh, within the the battalion that they were assigned to a proper company, proper, proper. Uh, and even so, many of them are still a bit inexperienced in what uh, you call the ways of the army. Don't you? Know, you know about the ways of the army. Yeah, and this is
0: recalled by Oswald MacDonald, the son of uh, a shipyard riveter. So he helped the other bloke catch them, <laughs> uh, who had been working as a bricklayer building air raid shelters before he was called up. And this is Private Oswald MacDonald of B Company. You were quite green. You'd volunteer for things that you should never have volunteered for, because never volunteer in the army. Could <laughs> anyone play the piano? Yes. Well, you go and clean the cookhouse up. Things like that.
1: And they were still using that old line, Oh, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> Never volunteer. Uh, everybody's still got a lot to learn. I mean, everybody has. I mean, even the, the guys who've been in there for a year. Uh, and so there's another whole series of tactical exercises. Uh, what sort of thing are they practising now, do you reckon, Gaz? Well, repelling a German invasion of Kent under
0: various scenarios, each designed to test endurance, communications and leadership. The newer recruits were being taught basic field craft, how to live in the open, how to prepare and occupy defensive positions.
1: And you went through all that? That's not changed? No. Meanwhile, what are the officers doing? Are they relaxing? Uh, No,
0: they are dispatched on courses, things like studying anti-tank measures, tank infantry cooperation, aircraft recognition... Very important, gas warfare and
1: liaison with artillery observation. Posts. Very important that last one. Uh, they've also got uh, demonstrations on the right and wrong way of giving orders. <laughs> one round rapid—that's <rabbit. laughs> wrong. <laughs> Just an illustration there, and the importance of following the correct battle procedure on first contact. Uh, well, why is it so important that all these, you know, battle procedure, battle? Well, it- because
0: mistakes are really quite difficult to put right once the fighting's actually started. Especially if you're dead. Absolutely. Now, January 1942, the battalion moved
1: out of their barrack winter quarters and into hotel billets in Folkestone. Blimey. Uh, and here, the, a lot of them found themselves on guard duties around the harbour area. And one of these was uh, Tom, Tom Lister, Thomas Lister. He's the son of a probation officer from, uh, from Durham, and he'd been working pre-war as a travelling wholesale fish salesman. Hey, you fish! Lovely fish. Uh, and that meant he could drive. Uh, he, he was uh, served a bit with the 8th Durham Light Infantry, then was sent as a driving instructor to Bransworth Castle Depot before he finally joined the 16th DLI. Now, he, he was a trained man. He was in the MT section. Uh, but it's interesting, isn't it? Well, what do you think he found when he joined? Uh, well, well, like well, others,
0: he felt himself a victim of the great north-south divide in English society. I felt myself a victim of that at times. Yes. And this is what Private Tom Lister of the NT, Military Transport Section, Headquarters Company
1: said. We didn't find we were particularly well received by the civilian population. I got the impression that nobody north of Watford Gap... uh, (laughs) Sorry. Everybody. (laughs) That anybody... (laughs) Sorry. Uh, I'll read that again. (laughs) That anybody north of the Watford Gap was a savage and illiterate. That's why it was important to get those words right. A lot of them didn't even know where Durham was. They thought it was in Scotland or somewhere. When you went, when you went to the pub, some some of them wouldn't even serve you. You can't get served in here. We've just got in for our own locals. Even if you were perfectly quiet and reasonable here. Yeah. Yeah. It, didn't co- it didn't cause any trouble, but certain types of blokes would resent it and show it by getting nasty, fighting locals. And yeah, there's always that. So, uh, the one thing we always say about the army is uh, everything you find in normal society is you in, find the army. in the army.
0: And so, some things never change. Aldershot, for example, when I was in the army, was, was notorious for trouble.
1: Yeah, and if, if if you treat soldiers badly, they some of them will uh, kick against it. Um, some things never change. That's it. Now, uh, what happens next? Well, on March in March 42, DLI move along the coast to Rye, uh, and between where it's Rye and Winchelsea, that's where's that East Sussex, isn't it? Is yeah, that, it's yeah, a, it's a, yeah. What are you doing there, Gary?
0: Well, they're doing a coastal defence role responsible for the seafront, stretching from Fairlight Cove to Rye Harbour.
1: Now, they, they establish a strong defensive post. Uh, who do they cooperate? It's quite interesting. Where's who, the uh, local home guard yeah. who were on Rye Hill? And uh, once they got settled into their new billets... The, ensconced. ensconced ensconced. Uh, I dodged that one. <laughs> ensconced. <laughs> Uh, they, uh, they they began the usual series of uh, exercises. More exercises, Gary, more exercises.
0: Well, they're practising for uh, every eventuality. But they also had to provide patrols
1: and guard parties all along the coast. Now, this was a regular duty for one George Fos- Forster, Forster. Yeah, not Foster. Forster. He was the son of a shipyard joiner. I wonder if he joined the rivets to the other rivets. Um, from South Shields, we know South Shields, don't we? Who had worked as an apprentice joiner before the army claimed him, and he ended up in the 16th DLI. Now, he was in Sea Company. What did he say, Gary? Well, first of all,
0: I think we'll say that a joiner's probably a carpenter. Oh, um, yeah. Hmm. Well, Private George Forster of Sea Company says this. We used to do guards on the harbour at Winchelsea. You did two hours on, four hours off for 48 hours. There were holiday chalets at the bottom of the hill and we used to be in a pillbox at the entrance to the chalets. We had sandbags and a bring gun. There were two guards on at a time. One used to stand in the pillbox and the other one walked round the chalets looking out to sea. It was all mined on the beach.
1: Yeah, exciting duty, do you think? No. Why not?
0: Well, I shouldn't imagine that uh, there was too much happening, was there? No. Now, on 9th of
1: May, 1942, uh, Colonel Murray, who we've not mentioned in this episode, but we mentioned last time. In the time, first one, yeah. He, he was uh, posted away. He became second commander second commander of uh, the support group of the 42nd Armour Division. Fine body of men, I think you said once. Uh, uh, he, he, well, what was he consider, how was he considered within the 6th DLI? Well, he had
0: been a popular colonel. And uh, they considered that he'd managed to achieve a high standard of training, despite the handicap, of losing drafts to units serving overseas, largely to the 6th, 8th and 9th DLI, serving with 151 Brigade in North Africa.
1: Yeah, 50th Dev, the the hardest fighting unit in the British Army, I believe you think. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> now, who's the new commanding officer? Well, it's Lieutenant Colonel Richard Ware. Uh, he's he's a DLI man uh, through and through, a regular DLI officer. Uh, he won a Military Cross in late nineteen eighteen. Uh, what what did he look like? Well, he was uh, a smart but somewhat stocky
0: figure. I just worked out while you're having me say this. So. Like you, ex- well, he, he was smart as well. Yes, and uh, he had an affable personality.
1: You have got
0: an affable person. Who, by this time in his life, was perceived by some of the men as more of an administrative type than a fighting officer.
1: Well, yeah, uh, I, I don't think the question is professionalism, no, and, uh, and he, in fact, he further intensifies the training programme. Of course he does, because that's... I mean, training programs are meant to be intensified. Uh, he has a lot of testing, uh, testy, test, 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 testies.
0: Yeah, and it's at this point his analytical skills proved invaluable in detecting problems and working towards realistic
1: solutions. Well, what what do you think of when there's a new kernel, how does that affect a unit? <laughs> well, inevitably, some things would change, but the underlying purpose... Are you purpose, talking about kernelitis?
0: <laughs> but the underlying purpose, the training of the 16th year life of war,
1: that remained the absolute priority. So he changed some things just for, like all Colonel two, just yeah. for the sake of it. But fundamentally, things—it's the the priority. Just well, to change. put their own stamp on things, and they're still sending reinforcement drafts off to the frontline units. Made, as we mentioned, mostly in 50th Div. Uh, so, what does that mean if you keep well, sending drafts? Well, there's a drafts,
0: constant stream of, of new recruits arriving who all would require training. So this is a, it's a, there's a churn going on, isn't there? There is. Now, life for the Durhams in Rye and the surrounding villages was not at all unpleasant. They were mostly in comfortable billets, and there was some time left after guard duties and training for some well-earned rest and relaxation. And some of the men found Winchelsea to be, um,
1: rather gentle. What do you mean? You're going to be Private George Forster, Sea Company again. What does he say? Don't forget that Winchelsea was a largely posh area. They had very
0: big houses, and they didn't seem to want to know you. They would nod to you, but they wouldn't converse with you. We used to go in the pub occasionally. They were all right because they were farm workers. They'd play Shavapney with you. There were two old ladies in their 80s in the main street opposite C Company offices, and they used to make tea and home-baked cakes. It was quite cheap for a nice cup of tea and home-baked scones. Very nice.
1: Scones. I think you'll find the Durham said. Scones. scones. <laughs> you say Scones. <laughs> no, we're we'll not seeing that. Uh, so he goes on. Uh, that, that, it, well, there's, a, there's, 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 there's a, some rather amusing confrontations between, say, I would call it two staples of British comedy, little old ladies and sergeant majors. I think they're, they're both. And you, you're going to tell us what uh, George Forster thinks of that. We were doing drill parade
0: and the regimental sergeant major, Thomason, uh, was standing on the pavement, cursing and swearing at the lads. And an old lady walked up to him. She tapped him on the shoulder and she says, "We don't have sharing in swearing in our village." He was speechless.
1: Well, you <laughs> sharing and swearing don't have either of them. Now, uh, most of the men uh, they found themselves a pub in in, in the town that suited them, and uh, m- most of them had enough beer to to keep them quiet, if you, or noisy, if you like. Um, uh, th- th- uh, in, the session, in the interviews, there, there didn't seem to have been a, a big drinking culture. There, there's just a few pints, isn't there? Um, what do you think the men may have been looking
0: for? Well, they naturally sought out what female company they could, and dances were extremely popular. You like to dance. I do not. Oh, no, you don't like to dance. That's it. Uh, and this is... Oh, This is one of your favourites. This is the rapidly promoted Company Quartermaster Sergeant Jimmy James of D Company.
1: There was a little hall behind the new inn, in a field, the village hall. George Broadhead was keen on organising dances. He decided to contact the ATS girls who were living at Awe, a, a little place just outside Winchelsea. They were informed that we had a pianist, a trombonist and a drummer. Company quarter mass, sergeant... Company quarter sergeant... S- <laughs> county, county, county camp. CQSM. <laughs> <laughs> right, George Gaines <laughs> was the kingpin because he created the tempo. He was a marvellous pianist. He could play any damn thing. He was a mighty Adam because he was about eleven tall. He was a funny little bugger from Leeds. That's rare. Most people from Leeds are big buggers. Um, it was really broad Yorkshire. George Broadhead was the announcer, the master of ceremonies. We would send over 1,500 weight trucks to bring these ATS girls to Winchelsea for the dance. I must say, they were a very happy crowd. I couldn't dance for toffee. Who can with obnaved boots on? I'd go into the new inn and have a couple of pints. <laughs> then somebody might say, oh, Where's it? Dance? So we go along to the dance hall. An ATS girl had her eye on me. She came up and said, Come on, let's have a dance. She said, I'll teach you. She tried to teach me, but with my great boots, I walked all over her. I did eventually learn the waltz and the slow foxtrot, but couldn't do anything else. We had the odd song song there was one particular singer who was in D company his name was Anderson he had a lovely silver tenor voice he gave one or two songs he yeah he'd sing ballad songs the one that will always stick in my mind was just a little love a little kiss i will give you all i have for you he'd sing it beautifully not like that <laughs> Take his time and get applause. Poor chap was killed. Quite a few liaisons sprang up. uh, uh, That's one of the things, because both the people mentioned there, that singer and Broadhead, were both killed. Uh, And that's uh, an underlying reality of uh, that's why we don't do accents.
0: (laughs) Now, life may have been relatively pleasant for the men of the 16th DLI during their period at Ryan, which you'll see, but there was a constant threat of German air attacks as the Luftwaffe base... Uh, bases were just a few miles across the channel. Yeah, you've got to remember that. Yeah, f- was it 15, 20 miles? I don't know. And this is once more Private Tom Lister oh, of the Motor Transport old, Section. So, you are so working so hard.
1: There were quite a few air raids at Rye, usually hit and run daytime raids. A lot of skirmishes between Spitfires, Hurricanes, and ME 109s, ME t- 110s. <laughs> oh, shut up. The Fockwolves. <laughs> were a tremendous nuisance because they were very fast and comparatively quiet. They sneaked in, wave high and dropped their bombs, fired their cannons and whizzed off in a flash. Wow. Now the sudden roar of German
0: fighter engines often came as a huge surprise, sometimes at the most inconvenient times. And I'm going to relate what Private Oswald MacDonald of B Company saw. General Montgomery, he started PT before breakfast. You had to get your PT kit and run about doing all these exercises. First thing. We were at Canberra one time. We had our white PT vests on with navy blue shorts and plimsolls. And I still wore them in the late 70s. Uh, you had a, a white one and a red one. And you had the uh, the shorts and the plimsolls. Which you was... had to
1: polish. You must have looked lovely.
0: I did look lovely. And he goes on to say this. We were running about on the beach. We had to run into the sea because the salt water does your feet a power of good. We got in there and we were about waist deep and a German aircraft came over. The sea at the best of times is cold. When you get there first thing in the morning, just after six or half past six, it's bloody cold. We couldn't get out of the water. We had to stay there until they flew away. We're in that water for quite some time. When we got out, we ran like hell to get out of the cold and into the warm baths and get changed.
1: Ah, oh, while we think of them getting changed, uh, we'll take a short break. And the impact
0: break. on cold water on a young man. Oh. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. You're still thinking about it. I'm again. still thinking about it now. Tom Tom tanney what a great name! Uh, was the son of a, a, a miner and trade union activist in Thornley. I don't know where Thornley is. Is that up near uh, Leeds? Uh,
1: it, no, no, it's uh, Thornley's just outside. Uh, um, it's, it's on Tees. Put a map up.
0: No! Now, he was working as an apprentice bricklayer when he was called up and posted to the 16th DLI in Billets at Winchelsea. He clearly remembered one German air raid when he was on guard duty and you're going to tell us what Private Tom Tunney of 15 Platoon
1: Sea Company saw. Standing orders were to shoot at any aircraft approaching from the sea at less than 100 feet. If you're on guard during the night, you were on picket during the day. It was a 24-hour job. We had this sentry box where you used to do your guard duty. There was a row... That went down to the beach And the main road went along the coast Two of you used to stand at this sentry box To stop anyone, anybody coming down onto the beach Which, if you remember, was mined <laughs> So it's a good idea to stop them uh, There was a Bren gun mounted on a tripod And you could fire it up uh, uh, up a height this, this this, plane came over It was a jerry He was about 1,500 feet o- Up off the coast And the ak ack was firing him I said, I'm going to have a go at the bugger I fired a full magazine off, 30-odd rounds. The plane just sailed straight over. I had to report to the Black Rat, great nickname, Company Sergeant Major Arthur Pearson, so nicknamed on account of his smart patent leather haircut, amongst other reasons. I love nicknames. (laughs) He says... You never in the world tried to shoot that plane, Dad. You couldn't have hit him with a Bofors gun, never mind a Bren gun. Out range. Yeah. Now, in most
0: cases, despite aircraft recognition lectures, it was incredibly difficult to determine the nationality of fast-moving, low-flying aircraft. They just had seconds, and a mistake in identification either way could be fatal.
1: Now, look, I can think of one bloke who could testify this. I remember interviewing him. Well, down in Dorsetshire, a chap called uh, Charles Palmer. He was the son of a poet, Herbert Palmer, uh, from Batley uh, originally. Uh, he, he was quite posh. He'd done OTC training at St. Albans School, not far from us here, Gary. Uh, On call-up, he was rejected for a commission. Uh, I wonder what that means. Uh, And had ended up in the ranks of the 16th DLI, uh, where he was on intelligence duties. Uh, Now, at 1340, on 28th of September 1942, he was on duty at his observation post up on the hill at Rye when several German fighters attacked. And this is what Charles Palmer said. These two planes came over, and we said, oh, that's all right. They'll be ours.
0: Being in the intelligence section, we were supposed to be able to identify aircraft, but when they're down low flying across, it's difficult. Suddenly, boom,
1: machine guns. They hit the cinema. Now, in all, four bombs were dropped, uh, and, and this, is, this isn't this is good news. Uh, one of them scored a dry, direct hit on the Regent's uh, cinema in Sonk port Street uh, in Rye. It, it, it just all happens so quick, doesn't it? And this is what Private Tom Lister of Motor Transport Section relates. He had a close shave, actually. They demolished the cinema in the Main Street one Saturday lunchtime. It was almost opposite our garage. I was standing talking to the MT clerk, Lance Corporal Jock Fisher. I wonder where he came from. Just outside, just outside... I'm sorry. i sorry. Put myself off there, didn't I? <laughs> the window was like a big shop window, 12 feet high, taking up the entire front of the garage except for the entrance. Suddenly there was a terrific roar and cannon fire. I grabbed Jock and banged him down into the gutter. We tried to get as close to the earth as we possibly could. <laughs> The bomb dropped on the cinema, virtually dead centre. The whole thing just disintegrated. There was bricks, glass and God knows what flying and showering down around us. Miraculously, neither of us got a mark on us. And it didn't even break the glass in the garage window. It was truly fantastic. As soon as it had gone, we jumped to our feet. Pretty shaken, I can tell you. All I could see was a leg sticking out of the ruins on the opposite side. We shot across and by then a a few more blokes that had been in the garage came out. We started to chuck debris away to try and get in, reasonably carefully. We were working on it about five or six minutes. Then the ARP, uh, air raid precaution people, came in. They found the remnants of the woman cashier. I don't like to contemplate whether a leg was still attached to the rest of her. It affected me very much. I'd never been in such close contact with a bomb and i was shaking for days 48 hour thing i thought i was never going to feel right again but it went the following week the feature film believe it or not was to be gone with the wind they couldn't make it, it up really could they you? couldn't make it up but soldiers can't resist a joke even at the end of something like that oh yeah I looked into it and there was uh, one of the reported fat- fat- fatality was a relief manager he'd been sent to Rye to get a rest a bit of a respite from the bombing in central London so he was not lucky was he uh, and uh, a woman and a baby were pulled alive from the shattered foyer. I'm not sure who this woman and her leg was, and it isn't apparent from the the stories. Uh, but in all, four, four civilians were killed and 26 injured. So this isn't, uh, you know, it's quite a serious it's business. Significant, yeah. Well, think of how we'd react now. On the seventh of October, the 16th DLI
0: held an efficiency competition to analyse the overall status of the battalion. How did that work then? Well, it was simple in conception. Each platoon had to march 10 miles in 2 hours in full service marching order, then fire their Lee-Enfield rifles, Bren guns and Thompson machine guns at figure targets, before a session of scaling cliffs using ropes. Every platoon was allotted 500 points, from which penalties would be deducted as follows. For each minute over marching time, minus 5 points. For every man failing to complete the course, minus 20 points. For any shots missing the target, minus one point. And for each man failing to scale the cliffs within 10 minutes, minus five points. The winning platoon did well, suffering only 114 penalties.
1: Now, overall, the Colonel, remember, the Colonel uh, Richard Ware, he he was really pleased, uh, uh, but he, he, he uses it as a learning experience. He tries to hammer home... The, 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 the principle, the the idea, the lessons of why they were doing this, why it wasn't just rubbish. what do, What does he say, Gary?
0: The spirit of determination and grit of the men was grand, and I was very much heartened to see it. I'm quite sure we have much to be proud of here, and we must make sure that we direct this grand spirit in the right way and see that it is devoted towards the proper end, the winning of this war and the defeat of evil. Yesterday, the men sweated their guts out to see their platoon win and not let their own show down. We
1: must feel the same about our cause and country. That's so. He's, he's, he's hammering home the point there. And uh, he, he what, one of the things he's interested in is, is leadership. Um, obviously, you can see why. He's particularly interested in his NCOs uh, and, 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 and whether they perform well, how well they're done, how good, how bad they were. What, what does he say about that? Most
0: leaders came out well in a fairly severe test. Not all the leading was judicious, but this could in many cases be accounted for by lack of experience. But the main point was that they had the men behind them, so that they would have done all they humanly could whatever was asked of them. But, and it's quite a big but, there was also some bad leadership. Cases in which commanders and their men were obviously not working together. In one platoon of D Company, this was very apparent and I hope the officer commanding the company will have realised this if he saw the platoon. There were other cases of sergeants shouting and blasting their men to get them there, particularly in the rope climbing. Whilst in a few cases this works because of the personality of the leader, in many more it fails, and the North Country men, as a rule, responds marvellously to good leadership and will give the most extraordinary loyalty and devotion to a leader he respects. But he merely becomes fed up and bloody obstinate in officers and NCOs uh, who attempt to drive him. I don't mean by this that the spur is never necessary. Of course, it often is. But some leaders are all spur. Did you, uh, when you I don't were- think that's unique to Northern
1: people. No, I, I, no, I think that's that's bollocks. Yeah, because he's I, talking I, to uh, the most. Of, the DLI come from everywhere, but the, there's still a, a balance of Northerners there because there's all the Yorkshire and Durham people there. But uh, I think I I, I, I think he's he, the the what the principle of what he's saying is right. But yeah, I'd, I'd agree. Did you uh, ever get fed up and bloody obstinate when officers tried to and NCOs tried to drive you?
0: Arguably, I still am. Yes. <laughs> now he was also more than a little concerned that most of the penalties across the board
1: were for shooting decisions. Now, this is serious stuff. And this uh, this is why, I, I you'll see why I'm I'm quite defensive of Richard Ware, because I think he's, he's a, a thoughtful officer. What does he say about the shooting? Even making allowance for physical condition at the end of the march, the
0: shooting was nowhere good, and in many cases, ranked bad. The range was less than 100 yards and nearer 50 yards. The targets were large and stationary. There was simply loads of time good firing positions, and the men were in no way hustled. If we are going to get such poor results in these conditions, what's going to happen in battle? So
1: what's he going to do? I mean, there's that. so he's observed something. What
0: does he do about it? Well, he resolved to prioritise shooting practice over the next few weeks to improve matters as quickly as possible. Sensible thing to do.
1: So, yep, yeah, so training goes on. 21st of October, not long after that, there's a dramatic incident several of the men saw when an, an aircraft, they, they identified as a JU88, Uh, flew in from the southeast at an altitude of about 500 feet. Um, All of the local anti-aircraft guns open up a a real barrage, uh, amongst them two Bren guns from the, uh, some of the Bren guns, rather, of the 16th DLI. And this is uh, Private George Forster of uh, Sea Company. What does he say? They gave us information that if an aircraft came in
0: low, you had to open fire because the British aircraft, (coughs) excuse me, had instructions to come over the coast at a certain height. This day, I was on duty with another chappie, Jack Paul. He said, the aircraft coming in, and it was spinning over the sea. We got the Bren, fun, the Bren gun and fired at it, <laughs> and there was smoke coming from it. I couldn't tell whether we hit it or not, but it came down the other side of Winchelsea. It dived into the ground. It was a bow fighter. For our trouble, we had to guard it all night. It was hit before we fired.
1: In other words, uh, this is a, an absolute catastrophic uh, misidentification again. Um, what, what were the circumstances? Well, it was a bow fighter, night fighter from Twenty Nine Squadron, uh, and, and that had, it was based at RAF West Malling. Um, uh, it 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 the, the it the, it, it, ha- it was wearing dark night camouflage. And what do you, what does that mean? Do you think? Well, it means that the RAF Randalls were
0: difficult to pick out against that type of camouflage. The aircraft, it crash-landed south of Watlands Farm at uh, Udimore, and unfortunately the crew, Sergeants Alfred Kester and Harold Wright, were both killed.
1: So that's uh, a terrible incident, really. Now, uh, by this time, uh, it's really against the odds. How how many of the Dunkirk botanists, 50, 60 Dunkirk botanists, do you think went into action? Well, I would say uh, pretty much only one yep uh, against all the odds it was decided that 16th L.I. was ready for active service um and uh, it, it it is um do the others are the others just wasting their time then no they all had a vital role but
0: they were either broken up or carried on providing drafts right the way through to the end of the war
1: now the first stage for the 16th L.I., this new adventure f- uh, comes in early december 1942 when they they're, they're sent to camberley. Uh, where they they billeted in unoccupied houses. Uh, that now here they haven't got an operational
0: role, have they? No, the main focus was on getting everyone away on embarkation leave before they went overseas. Uh, there was secrecy over their destination, so in the absence
1: of facts, the rumour mill went into overdrive. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the army would never allow that now. And this is Sergeant uh, Russell King, Seventeen Platoon, D Company. He says it was all very hush hush. We were left with we were left without being able to notify anybody. We just sort of upped sticks, and that was it. I don't think anybody had any idea where we were going. Of course, you got the usual rumours that they'd seen Arctic clothing. Oh. Now by
0: this time the various disparate drafts had gelled together to form a coherent whole. And this is Private Tom Turnbull of B Company, Turnbull, sorry, of B Company. We all wanted to stay with the battalion. None of us wanted to leave because we had a good set of lads and you all mucked in. We were damn good pals. I wouldn't have liked to have left the battalion. When we got eight days, we knew something was in the wind, that that was a hint that we were going somewhere. There were rumours flying around that we were going up to Scotland. I told my wife when I was on my eight days, I'll be seeing you, we'll be getting a leave from Scotland. But I didn't.
1: Now, their, their embarkation leave, uh, I haven't got written down who the next one is or, or who it is. Oh, it's Jimmy James, it's me. Right, it's all right. Yeah, I've got it. Right. It's it's often a sort of bittersweet experience. What do I mean? Why 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 do I say it's bittersweet? You know, it's Well, because
0: the Great Ward left no one under any illusions as to the vicious nature of combat and of the dreadful casualty lists that often resulted.
1: Mm. Well, this is what Company Quartermaster Sergeant James, Jimmy James, D Company, said. We had our home leave. It was December. It was so damn near to Christmas. My family was so distraught. Everybody was in tears. Christmas was a sentimental part of the year. Supposed to be such a happy time, yet it it was a sad time. "'It was a goodbye occasion, "'but I was determined to show them that I was happy "'to make it easier. "'So I was a smiler and left full of good spirits. "'They were all out looking at me "'and I turned round and gave them a good wave "'and they waved and that was it.' "'That's, uh, I can imagine you being cheery.' "'No, I can't imagine it. "'I'd have been in tears, I'd imagine.' Um, "'Now the battalion was up to its neck in final preparation.
0: "'Every soldier's uniform and kit was inspected.' Worn clothing was replaced
1: and equipment made good for any that was missing or faulty items. Now, everything, was, uh, everything they needed for, for overseas were packed away and anything extraneous, Gary, was, uh, was dispatched home, back to the barracks or whatever. And then, then, what often happens to British soldiers before they go to die for king and country?
0: Well, in this case, on the uh, 18th of December in the afternoon, they had the honour of an inspection by George VI. We were about to salute you. No, we were about to die salute you. Yes, and this is, once more, Company Quartermaster Sergeant
1: Jimmy James of D Company. We were given the date and the hour. The big day came. The bands were there. The DLI band came down to Camberley. The whole of the division, 46th Division, was going to be inspected by the King, by King George VI. We were in battle dress, spick and span. No arms except for white belts and bayonets boots really polished we marched down through camberley to the band this military band was wonderful they were playing the army of the nile it's a stirring march soldiers marching in step they they really were everybody was marching upright, arms swinging left right nobody out of step at all we arrived at the place of inspection wow
0: now, the King's inspection may have been intended to swell their patriotic feelings before they went off to face the foe, as it were. Oh. But the uh, gallant Durham's did not respond well to the experience. As was so often the case with army ceremonial inspections, their patience had been tested by a long wait in the cold, miserable weather.
1: Yes, yeah, December, remember, Gary? And, uh, yeah, the, so Company Quartermaster Sergeant J- Jimmy James says this. We were standing there for ages before he came, an endless age. At one time, I thought I was going to see black. Uh, he means faint, doesn't he? Yeah, uh, I was standing for so long and you dare not move. The blood just leaves your head. Fortunately, I recovered. I remember thinking, God, I'll be glad when this is over. When the king approached in front of me, I could see him coming from my left. I was just looking straight ahead, but perif- peripheral, peripheral. Vision gave me the king. He had his best uniform on and was made up to the nines with rouge and powder and paint with his entourage. He had a, he had a brigadier and a colonel with him. He stood in front of every man. He didn't say anything to anybody. I, think, I don't think he spoke a word because he stammered. Uh, I'm not sure about that, but yeah, wow. Now,
0: several of the men noticed that the king was wearing face powder and possibly lipstick, now, uh, what's in going fairness, on here? Let's be let's be fair. Let's here. be fair. He wasn't a strong man, and his health was generally precarious. The make-up was probably to give the illusion of
1: good health. Yes. Uh, so we're not implying anything, or rather, let's be honest. It's not both. We're just repeating the words. The lads aren't really implying anything. They just noticed it, didn't they? Now, this is what Private George Forster said. He was in C Company. Uh, he was not a man to complain either. So I'm glad you're doing this one. We stood in some park near
0: Camberley for about three and a half hours in the cold, whole of the 46th Division. Then, after the King had walked up and down and inspected the troops, he got in a car to drive off, and the regimental Sergeant Major shouted, If you want to rent in the roadway and cheer, you can! Well, it was that cold that hardly anybody moved. It was perishing cold. It was
1: December. That was the reception he got. Now, one of the things people often say is, well, I'm only using contemporary sources because oral history and, and personal memoirs are so inaccurate. I, I only use things like war diaries and things like that. You've heard these people, haven't you, Gary? They, they talk about yeah. So it's
0: interesting to note that the regimental diary, in this case, you know, uh, it
1: says this. His Majesty walked along the ranks and spoke to a number of the officers and men before the regimental band played the battalion back to the billets. The men, cheering continuously, lined the road along which the king drove away. A memorable day. Now, who do you believe? Yeah, and why would
0: they put it in that way? I mean, it's because they're they're maintaining the reputation of the regiment.
1: Yeah, and and that's what people forget. That's what a a war diary uh, is all about.
0: Now, the battalion was to embark from Liverpool, uh, bound for God knows where. Well, they didn't know, did they? And the main body of the battalion left from Farnborough Station in two trains on the night of the 21st of December. So what does Private George Forster, C Company, remember about that? We marched to the railway station, got on a troop train at approximately 7 o'clock in the evening. We travelled all night. No one knew which destination we were going to. It was just getting till daylight as we pulled into a big town. And one of the lads, he was from Liverpool, and he says, Oh, there's our house. And we realised we were in Liverpool. We went straight through onto the docks. We never got a chance to look or see anything. They shepherded us us from the train straight onto the boat. A matter of ten yards
1: Military police were everywhere. There was no chance of anybody absconding. So by 12.30 on the 22nd of December, the men are nearly all safely aboard the troop ship. What was she called? Do you remember? Uh, the Staffordshire. Yeah. So the 16th DLI, they're on their way to war, aren't they, Gary? They're, this is it. Uh, yeah, but where,
0: where are they going? Where? Where, Gary? Where? Where?
1: Well, we'll find out
0: on the next exciting episode.
1: Ooh.
0: Bet it's North Africa. Oh, spoiler.
1: Cheers, Gary. Cheers,
0: Pete.
1: Thanks for listening to the show. If you'd like to support us, you can now buy us a coffee. Visit www.buymeacoffee.com backslash P-G-M-H
0: or... Visit www.blah, blah, blah,
1: blah, blah. And we'd be jolly grateful. Cheers.
0: Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odour control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. luxurious Italian leather bags and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee, at buy me a coffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only two pounds per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?